Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tesla tweaking. Elon Musk says supply chain issues are forcing up prices. Energy expectations, OPEC Plus talks supply as oil hits three-year highs. An Olympian onboarding, Australia's softball team arrives fully vaccinated in Tokyo. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome to all our first leaders from around the world. Fantastic to be with you as always as we begin a new month together. And as always, we've got a great lineup of guests for you today. We've got Dr. Julie Germending. She's former U.S. CDC director and the current chief patent officer at drug maker Merck on the urgent need to rush COVID vaccines and therapeutics to all corners of the globe as we fight to outrun virus variants. Plus, Entrepreneur and tech investor Gary Vaynerchuk and famed crypto bull Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital will be talking crypto, NFTs and their new digital collectible partnership with Major League Baseball. And looking ready to score some runs, the U.S. majors. Look, I'm learning my baseball terminology ahead of that interview. Europe also rising to fresh all-time highs and Asia making gains across the board too. The big economic story today, more evidence of soaring demand for goods, squeezed supplies and rising prices. Firstly, to the oil market, Brent and U.S. crude at multi-year highs, fueled by rising demand as economies recover, but also perhaps that OPEC won't react fast enough to raise supplies in order to meet it. OPEC Plus meets today, so we'll be discussing that later on in the show. Elsewhere, South Korea reporting its best export numbers in 30 years. And in the Eurozone, factory growth hitting all-time highs last month with inflation at more than two-year highs, certainly above the European Central Bank's targets. Factory managers there are warning that there's no end in sight, too, for product shortages and supply pressures. Something, as I mentioned briefly at the top of the show, carmaker Tesla is also juggling with and that's where we begin the drivers. Elon Musk saying the price of Tesla vehicles is rising because of the supply chain pressures. Claire Sebastian joins me now. It's one of a number of price increases. Let's be clear over the past couple of months. What's always interesting with this one, though, is that it was announced on Twitter in response to a tweet complaining about those price rises. Yeah, Julia, always look for news in Elon Musk's replies to <laughs> tweets, not just his own tweets. Uh, this, according to Dan uh, Ives at Wedbush, is the seventh incremental increase uh, in the price of the Model 3 and Y over the past few months. So it's significant. And Tesla, as we know, not immune to the supply chain issues that we've seen uh, affecting all car makers. This is what Elon Musk said in his tweet. He said prices increasing due to major supply chain price pressure industry wide 
raw materials especially. We know things like copper, steel, aluminium, all of those that are essential for car making, uh, those have gone up shockingly in price according to businesses I've been speaking to. And at the same time, we're seeing a shortage of microchips also due to supply chain issues. That has led to interruptions in production. Uh, port capacity issues have led to higher expedite costs. We learned all this on Tesla's most recent earnings call. And the price increases you know, have been fairly significant. Uh, you know, I look back at the Internet Archive. Uh, in February, the, the Model 3 standard Range was twenty nine thousand. Now it's about thirty three and a half thousand. So that's really around a fifteen percent price increase on that. So fairly significant. And again, Tesla blaming raw materials. They did though say in that recent earnings call that the situation does look like it's improving. Yeah, and you'd have had a shocker as well if you'd have paid in Bitcoin and then had a refund in the interim as well. But that's a completely separate point. Um, Claire, it always makes me laugh when we talk about Tesla. Whatever the story is. Because, of course, they don't pay any advertising or marketing expenditure because we end up doing it for them. And obviously, Elon Musk does it himself. But it does draw attention to issues like this that perhaps other car makers might be doing stealthily behind the scenes, too. What are we hearing from other car makers, perhaps, about rising prices, too? Well, we know prices are going up, Julia. And again, this is what we've talking about. We've talked about when we talk about inflation, the intersection of supply chain disruption and, and surging demand. We know that demand for new cars has gone up dramatically. People are going back to work. They need them for commuting. People are still a bit wary of, of public transport, uh, things like that. So J.D. Power says in the first quarter, the new car prices in the U.S. were up 8% to 37200 It's also affecting used cars dramatically. Those prices have been up at auction 26% since the start of the year. Retail apparently up 7%, but I know from speaking to, to used car dealers that, that they are also raising prices, they say, uh, by about 20%. So, so it's a huge crunch in that industry at the moment. Worth noting, though, when comparing with Tesla, that, that buying a Tesla is a bit different than buying uh, another type of car. Often with, with other types of cars, you can haggle. Tesla tends to not allow that. You, you pay the sticker price. So that's why those price increases are significant there. Yes. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right. Tied to this story, oil at two-year highs going into an OPEC Plus meeting. Right now, the cartel is discussing with allies how much oil to supply in the summer. Brent and WTI are trading around $70 a barrel. Anna Stewart joins us now. We're clearly seeing oil demand bouncing back, even with some of the mobility restrictions that we still have in place around the world. Anna, what can we expect from this meeting? I think the next big decision really for OPEC Plus is what are they going to do beyond July? Because they already returned some oil to the market after huge cuts last year in April. That goes to the period through July. But as you said, this demand recovery is really taking off, particularly led by the US and Europe. Just yesterday, the technical committee for OPEC, the JTC, confirmed that they're expecting a jump in oil demand around the world by 6 million barrels a day. So the big question is, They are going to have to turn those taps on, but just how fast do they do that? And we're actually not necessarily going to get any big decision today. They may wait till the end of June. There are a few complications to this picture. One, the fact that while this uh, recovery demand in the West is pretty strong, it's actually for once not really being matched in Asia, particularly India, of course, a huge consumer of oil facing such a bad uh, case of COVID. And so that could impact this picture. Also, Iran, Julia, US-Iran nuclear talks well underway. Lots of optimism there for that. Uh, And what would that mean? That could mean sanctions are lifted. Iran could bring millions of barrels a day back onto the market. Anna, where are you, by the way? I know this is a virtual meeting, but I can't take my (laughs) eyes off the backdrop and and how sunny and happy it looks there. (laughs) 
sunny and happy here, Julie. I'd say the only real link for oil would be the tanning oil that Londoners will be putting on today. So they burn to a crisp on the first day of sunshine. But this is very near my home. This is my makeshift studio until the big return, hopefully not too long. Julia. Yeah, I was about to say, Pete's going to an OPEC meeting. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> OK, to Japan now, where Olympic athletes are starting to get vaccinated ahead of the Summer Games next month. Australia's softball team arrived on Tuesday. They're among the first overseas competitors to travel to Japan for the Olympics. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo for more. Selena, the first team from Australia arriving fully vaccinated, I believe. But for others, they can get vaccinated on arrival. Well, Julia, vaccinations have actually just started today on Tuesday in Japan for these Olympic athletes, starting with 200 inoculations of these athletes today. Now, the fact that these athletes can jump the line here in Japan for the vaccines has drawn much public scrutiny, given, as we've discussed, less than 3% of the Japanese population has been fully vaccinated, with only medical workers and those 65 and older currently eligible. Now, the government is trying to speed up that pace. They've been opening these mass vaccination sites here in Tokyo, as well in Osaka. The government has also announced that they're also going to start making vaccines available at universities and at workplaces. Now, officials have said that they expect more than 80% of the Olympic Village to be vaccinated. This does not include the tens of thousands of officials and volunteers that will be coming into contact with that bubble, however. You also have Pfizer and BioNTech saying they're offering to donate these vaccines to the Olympic athletes. But Julia, that does not ensure that all of these athletes are going to be vaccinated in time, considering that you have more than 100 countries that are struggling with vaccine authorization and availability. Right now as well, another issue we're watching closely is the fact that local spectators, we don't know if any or how many can be allowed in these stands. We know that foreign spectators are already banned, but you have local media now reporting that they may require a negative PCR test or a vaccine certificate in order for these domestic spectators to get into the stands. But Julia, unclear how many of those people there will be with that vaccine certificate, considering we still don't have a timeline for when the rest of the adult population is eligible for a vaccine here in Japan. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you and I have been talking about the prospect of perhaps a decision to cancel the Olympics and the authorities in Japan, the International Olympic Committee have been saying, look, it's going to go ahead. And what you realize is, as these teams start arriving, we're perhaps beyond the decision to cancel even now. The question comes down to exactly what you were talking about there and whether or not there's going to be any spectators that are allowed in at all. Julia, well, certainly the clock is ticking, the window is narrowing, but anything is possible. But as you say, the fact that these Olympians are arriving in Japan is certainly the most tangible and strongest sign we've probably seen yet that these games are going ahead. They are moving forward. You had the Australian women's softball team just arriving in Japan. They are the first international athletes to arrive in this country for the Olympics, aside from the South Sudanese athletes that have been here since 2019. Now, they are going to be confined only to their hotel and their training center. That is it. For the next one and a half months, that is going to be their life. But it is, again, a sign that these games are in operational mode despite the public opposition, despite these calls for cancellation and the fact that Japan is still battling with this fourth wave of COVID-19 cases. But we've talked about this before. The International Olympic Committee said they're confident they're going to move forward with these games, even if Japan is still in a state of emergency. And the IOC, the real decision maker here, they've made it clear that they are confident they can maintain that bubble despite 
the skepticism from the medical community. And the financial stakes are huge. The incentives are huge for the IOC to hold the games this year. There is so much money on the line, including revenue from those broadcasting rights. Julia? Yeah, not to mention others. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Leading sports figures are voicing their support for tennis star Naomi Osaka as she pulled out of the French Open. The four-time major winner caused a stir at the tournament when she refused to take part in news conferences, saying they were bad for her mental health. She said she withdrew from the event to avoid further distractions and to focus on her well-being. For more, CNN's Alex Thomas joins us live. Alex, it's sad to lose such a huge star from the tennis tournament, but actually Actually, as I watched the coverage of this over the weekend, it was Martina Navratilova's tweet that caught my attention when she said, look, this is about way more than just a press conference. And these athletes are taught to take care of their physical health. But what about their emotional and their mental well-being, too? Do you just have to accept that as part of the pressure? I'm not sure you do. There's certainly been a massive change in tone, I think, from former players. You're seeing the Martina Navratilova tweet there, you know, saying how sad she was to hear about Naomi Osaka. Hope she'll be OK. And talking, as you say, that it's much more than just whether or not you do a, a press conference. But Martina's tone itself has also changed from the weekend. And it depends on which of the two statements you're referring to. When Naomi Osaka first warned the world that she was not going to do these mandatory post-match press conferences, um, I think she herself has admitted since then that she got her message slightly vague. She maybe should have spoken to tennis authorities more in advance, tried to thrash out some sort of compromise. Now there is nearly, you know, widespread sympathy for her because she's admitted she's been suffering long bouts of depression ever since that breakthrough Grand Slam title win at the 2018 US Open, which is more famous, that final, for Serena Williams having a massive row with one of the line judges. And there was lots of sympathy for Osaka then. She was in tears and, and largely forgotten, even though it was her first big major win. So there's been a huge change in the recognition of mental health issues, particularly in the sporting world where elite athletes have to perform at their very best all the time. So people have lots of sympathy about that. But as you say, she's a huge star. Uh, a recent survey said that she's now the richest female athlete of any sport in the world. That's how rapid her rise has been. So it would be a huge shame to lose her from the sport of tennis. She's taking a break from the game completely. If we're to see her back at the highest level again, there clearly needs to be a lot of discussion between her and tennis authorities. Julia? Yeah, I remember that vividly with Serena Williams as well. And she was sort of lambasted at the time for being a diva. And I think some of the perception when Naomi came out and said this and she wasn't going to talk to the press, it was like, hang on a second, you know, that's that's part of the job and you have to do it and, and you're being a diva. Alex, do you think anything changes as a result of this in terms of just how the press conferences are carried out? Is I mean, that just could... part of the deal of being a sports star? Yeah, it is part of the deal, but there could still be changes because, mm. of course, it's subtly different in every sport. We were discussing in the office a bit earlier how different it is in tennis or golf, say, compared to a team sport like soccer or football or rugby or cricket, where you have other teammates that can shoulder the media responsibilities from time to time. Uh, you can be let down by a player or you yourself can be the star. In an individual sport like tennis, you know, you live or die on your own merits. And that means it can be huge glory and a massive high, but also the world the weight of the world can be on your shoulders at times. And uh, we heard earlier on CNN, earlier in the day, from Pat Cash, a former Wimbledon champion, who's admitted to me he might have taken his own life at one stage. He was so depressed while at the peak of his powers and only stopped himself because of his children. That's how serious it can get and was never discussed at that time. And, of course, there is greater awareness now. So I think the, the, the whole 
dialogue over this has completely changed. Now Naomi has been so clear and transparent and open about her mental health struggles. Yeah, we wish her well and hopefully back to the game as, as soon as possible. Alex Thomas, thank you for that. Okay, Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh City is under a strict new lockdown for two weeks to combat a fourth wave of COVID-19 infections. Mandatory testing is underway in high-risk areas. Health officials say they found a suspected new coronavirus variant that appears to be a hybrid of two highly transmissible strains. The office of Israel's president has rejected a petition from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which sought to prevent a rival from forming a new government. Right-wing politician Nafali Bennett is working to agree on a coalition deal with opposition parties to oust Prime Minister Netanyahu. Party leaders have until Wednesday to finalise an agreement. Coming up on First Move, Merck's anti-COVID pill begins phase three trials. What it could mean for India's disastrous outbreak next. Plus, a major partnership in an emerging space, digital collectibles. We'll talk to the team launching Candy Digital about their deal with Major League Baseball. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. An antiviral pill developed by Merck is now in phase three trials in India. Officials there hope an oral treatment for COVID-19 could help stem the country's outbreak. Merck announced licensing agreements with five Indian manufacturers last month to help produce it. If the drug proves safe and effective, it would be a major step forward in the global fight against the disease. And joining us now is Julie Gerberding. She's executive vice president and chief patent officer at Merck. She's also a former director of the CDC. Dr. Gerberding, fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I want to tap into your expertise, both at Merck, of course, and um, at the CDC. But let's just start by explaining what Merck's doing in the battle against COVID. Thank you. And and like many of us, we're trying to fight this battle on multiple fronts. Mm. The most important focus right now is on a drug called malnupiravir, which is an antiviral, an oral antiviral that we hope will prove to be safe and effective effective in preventing the severe consequences of disease, or perhaps even in preventing infection in people who are exposed. We're just in phase three studies with this right now, so it's too early to say for sure how it will turn out. But because it could be so helpful in places like India, uh, we are leaning into scaling up the manufacturing and being ready if it does prove to be successful. And in terms of vaccine production as well, because I know you're working with um, J&J in terms of ramping up production of their vaccine, do you think that we are getting the balance right between the focus that we're putting on manufacturing of vaccines and then the the manufacturing of therapeutics too? Because to your point, this could be a a crucial element in, in maintaining or controlling the disease around the world. You know, this is really a three-legged stool. We absolutely need to continue to advocate for vaccine availability and access around the world because that is a really important part of the front line. But inevitably, we're still going to need treatment. If for no other reason, then variants are emerging and not everyone is going to be able to be vaccinated or respond to vaccine. That means we also have to maintain some level of vigilance, particularly in the hot spots where the pandemic is far from subsiding. How worried are you by what you're seeing in terms of 
the spread of the virus and the variants that we're talking about now. I mean, the World Health Organization's decided to sort of change the terminology that we use as far as the variants are concerned because they don't want this stigma attached to where they're first identified. We have to get more comfortable with being honest about what we're seeing and and the implications of it. Yeah, I think I'd say we're on the steep slope of a learning curve about coronaviruses and particularly this one. The fact that we saw variants emerge before we were subjecting them to pressure from treatment or vaccines suggests that this is the second nature to the coronavirus that we're dealing with. So we shouldn't be surprised if more variants emerge over time. Fortunately, the immune response is robust, and so far we're holding our own with vaccines when people are able to get them and the population coverage is high, but there's no guarantee that will continue. So staying on top of these variants is absolutely critical. And where does Merck stand on waiving intellectual property rights for some of these patents? I'm tapping into your uh, chief patent officer uh, hat here, too. Um, We spoke. I I have to explain that actually I'm the chief patient officer, not the chief patent officer. Oh, patient. My apologies. Anyway, you know, I think one of the miracles of the rapid response in vaccine and antiviral production in this pandemic is the fact that we had a system where people were making bets on antivirals and vaccines long before the pandemic emerged. And they do that because they understand they have the protection from patents. So in a sense, we're benefiting from the patent system that has served us well for a long period of time. But we're also demonstrating that when we need to, we can come together as a biopharmaceutical industry, share our resources, help each other. For example, Merck is helping J&J manufacture its vaccine, and you're seeing that story play out across the industry. But in addition, by voluntarily licensing products like malnupiravir into places where there would normally be a long lag, we're really helping accelerate access using our kind of normal mechanisms. Um, I think we all understand that uh, having a compulsory license of a vaccine is not going to be anywhere close to in time to make a difference in the current pandemic but it could threaten our ability to continue to invest and build a better front line of protection over the long run. Yeah, there has to be a balance there, um, particularly in light of what we've seen in the last um, the last 18 months. I know one of the other things that you're incredibly focused on is what isn't happening as a result of the focus that we're placing on COVID-19, on, on vaccines for, for COVID-19 in particular, and that's immunizations for other diseases, measles in particular. Talk me through how concerned you are about what you're seeing there. You know, I think one of the biggest myths about COVID-19 is that children are not affected. Um, They are, of course, rarely becoming sick with the actual SARS coronavirus. But on a global basis, our children have become incredibly susceptible to the vaccine preventable diseases that normally we would have robust immunization programs to protect them. Since COVID began, 101 immunization programs in 56 countries have either delayed or suspended their national immunization programs. Measles is the canary in the coal mine for this problem. We were dealing with the measles 
problem even before COVID, a doubling of deaths between 2016 and 2019. 200,000 children died from measles in 2019. Now we're seeing a suspension of measles programs. We're seeing delays in introducing other vaccines like HPV vaccine, which we know is a cancer prevention opportunity. And if we don't catch up with this pause in effective immunization programs, our children will pay a price. Do you see authorities talking about this enough? I mean, this is terrifying. You know, I, I think it's hidden in the background of all the noise on the SARS coronavirus and right. the tragedies that are unfolding. But we need to have a more robust conversation. We need to get behind the financing, the advocacy and the implementation of these programs, especially in the lower income countries. Yeah, and make them understand that these things are carrying on. These things are happening even when we're all focused on COVID. There are other important diseases that people need protection against. You know, it's really part of the uh, place we need to be as we emerge from the surge. Right. We need to kind of check in, get our checkups, and then get back to care so that we don't succumb to vaccine-preventable diseases, undiagnosed cancers, or any of the other conditions that have been in the background while we've been concentrating on the pandemic. Yeah, get back to the doctor and uh, check, your, um, check your health and keep taking all the things that we were doing before. Dr. Julie Gerberding, fantastic to have you on the show. Chief Patient Officer at Merck. Get that right. Thank you. you need to get more sleep. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Great to have you with us and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running as the curtain rises on a new week and a new month on Wall Street's clapping waving and smiles there at the stock exchange. Call it a June jump or the U.S. majors in the green with both the Dow and the S&P closing in on fresh record highs. The S&P coming off its fourth straight winning month, in fact, and up some 12 percent year to date. U.S. investors facing a busier data environment this week, too, with the main event, the U.S. jobs report on Friday. And an important read on U.S. manufacturing is out within the hour today, too. As we mentioned earlier, European factories reporting record growth last month, but price pressures are certainly building. In the meantime, the U.S. dollar kicking off the week with losses, extending a two-month slide. The dollar, however, gaining against the Chinese yuan. Chinese officials taking new steps this week to cap the rise in its red-hot currency. In the meantime, global investors have a new way to play the world's growing appetite for alternative meat. Philippines food giant Monday Nissan has launched the largest food IPO in Southeast Asia history today, raising some $1 billion. The company will use the cash to expand its meat substitute brand. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, Quorn. They own Quorn, which I didn't realize. I just didn't know where that had gone. But it's also Lucky Me noodles as well, which our South Asian viewers and those that have traveled there, I think, will know very well. Talk us through this deal. Yeah, this is a company, as you point out, the, the Lucky Me noodles are popular in the Philippines and Thailand, the company hoping to expand to other markets in Asia as well as Europe and North America. But you nailed it, Julia. Corn, I believe they do pronounce it without the Q-U sounding qua, so it's corn, not corn, is clearly the star of this company now. When you look at how Beyond Meat has done in the United States, Impossible Foods, a lot of excitement about a potential IPO there. Oatly recently went public. So plant-based foods are 
obviously a big phenomenon globally, not just in the United States. And corn is a part of that for Monday Nissan. This is, makes up about 22% of the uh, company's total sales. And I think they are hoping to expand into other markets again around the globe to capitalize on a, an appetite for plant-based alternatives to meat. I was looking at some of the details on this and the growth opportunities, and apparently the average customer in the Philippines eats around 36 packs of noodles per year. In Vietnam and Indonesia, it's um, normally around 50 packs of noodles. So there's already growth opportunities there. But what about international opportunities, whether it's the United States, whether it's perhaps expanding into Europe over the coming years, and uh, perhaps even a dual listing just to fly the flag of the brand? Exactly. Yeah. Well, when you look at corn in the first place, that is a company that had its roots in the UK. And I think that you will see uh, Monday Nissan try and expand the plant-based food business around the world, particularly in the US, where there is growing demand for those types of uh, food. But you nailed it. The CEO uh, mentioning to uh, uh, CNN Business that there is a potential interest in listing perhaps in London or even on uh, you know, a New York exchange, be it the NYSE or the NASDAQ. So one step at a time, the stock is down in its first day of trading ever so slightly, so not the most scintillating of debuts for this company. But right now, it is still the biggest Philippine listing. So there is uh, obviously something to be said for that. Soggy corn. It's like um, quinoa and quinoa. I'm sorry, but this will always be corn to me as opposed to corn. But clearly, I'm still recovering from the bad weather at the weekend, getting titles wrong and names wrong, too. Thank you for correcting me. Corn. (laughs) Corn. Paula Monica, thank you for that. Okay, owning a piece of baseball history as an NFT, a non-fungible token, a trio of entrepreneurs and innovators launching a digital memorabilia company, and they already have a major partner with them. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Bitcoin looking for a break after a rough month for the crypto faithful. Bitcoin trading relatively unchanged today after falling more than 35% in May. JP Morgan's crypto analyst saying recent price action suggests Bitcoin needs to fall to $26,000 before seeing significant support. And a mixed day too for the rest of the crypto community. I can give you a quick look at what we're seeing there too. Now, the crypto turbulence not deterring some of the industry's biggest players from launching new products. Michael Rubin, executive chairman of Fanatics, a provider of licensed sports merchandise. Mike Novogratz, founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital, the digital assets investment manager and entrepreneur and investor Gary Vaynerchuk, aka Gary V, are teaming up. Together, they're launching Candy Digital, a digital collectibles company, their first partner in the NFT space. That's non-fungible tokens, if you remember, is no less than major league baseball. And I'm pleased to say both Mike and Gary join us now. Guys, fantastic to have you on the show. Gary, I'm going to begin with you because um, last time you were on, you helped put this in English. What is Candy Digital and what's this going to mean for, I think, around 80 million Fanatics consumers, but also MLB fans? Talk us through it. You know, it's a it's a marketplace, an IP, a brand that is looking to curate uh, and collect uh 
intellectual property assets and create its own and create non-fungible tokens to the marketplace that we think bring disproportionate value, whether that's on-chain or off-chain. And uh, obviously, to do something with Michael and Mike is pretty incredible for me. Uh, And uh, we're excited about it. I think for MLB fans, you've got three individuals who got some gray hairs at this point in their lives who've been through the battles and have and also have a good sense of what's going on in the NFT and collectible space and we're we're very hopeful that over the next several months and years we put together products that the market is interested in i remember vividly when you, we had you on a few weeks ago and you said nba top shot is a phenomenon and that's a huge, huge NFT marketplace. It kind of combines the sort of crypto craze with the sports fanaticism too. Is this you saying, look, whatever those guys can do, we can do and maybe better? I certainly hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I think there's a step back. This is going to be a giant market. We're literally at the national anthem, not even the first inning of, of the NFT movement. Right. NFTs are going to revolutionize how we think about collectibles, how we think about digital art, how we think about IP in general, from music to brands. Uh, And so I think there's going to be room for lots of players. Uh, We think we're going to build a world class company with long term vision. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the crypto world taking the institutional investor on a journey into this crypto journey. And I think we do the same thing here. Fanatics has 82 million rabid sports fan customers. They right now probably aren't a lot of them NFT players, right? The NFT community came mostly from crypto natives. And so part of this journey is making NFTs accessible to this broad universe, not just a small crypto universe. Uh, Sports is a perfect place to do it, right? If you think about what crypto is, it's about building communities, uh, tribalism in lots of ways. And sports already has that, right? You've got these fanatic Jets fans, if you're Gary Vee or Knicks or you name it, or, 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 you know, Yankees, Yankees versus Mets. Uh, and so using digital assets uh, as a new form of entertainment, using them to bring young fans into the, into the community, uh, it's fascinating. And MLB is a great, great partner to start with. Gary, again, when you were on last time, you said the power in, in NFTs is that one day we're all going to have a wallet. We're all going to have loads of tokens in that wallet and you're going to be able to exchange them in the future. Um, Every time one of these collectibles or whatever it is that's tied to MLB changes hands, you assume, I like the way that the economics gets reset, that they get a cut of the, the price that's paid. Will Candy Digital also take a cut of that? Like, just let me understand the business here. Yeah, so I think every deal is different. And, you know, maybe I'll allow Mike to get uh, into those details. But I think Mike will have the same answer as I will, which is, Every single one of our deals are gonna be different deals, no different than, let's say, a TV network that goes out and got TV rights from different leagues or different IP. Uh, But the reality is the blockchain allows that royalty exchange and it's very much part of our strategy when applicable. And so the other thing for the viewers who are watching right now, a lot of you will probably remember when video games were not the most important thing in culture or the biggest entertainment. You know, I'm 45, I remember when Pac-Man and Donkey Kong were just getting going, pre-Nintendo. If you think about what FIFA did for soccer in America, the video game, FIFA, hmm. 
created so much more interest and then the Olympic soccer team, you know, the World Cup, excuse me, uh, soccer teams, women's and men's built on top of that. For me, what's incredible about NFTs and why I'm so excited that Candy has this deal with Major League Baseball, when you look at the incredible young stars like Fernando Tatis and Juan Soto, taking the momentum of what's going on with the sport to begin with and now creating a new genre that may get people that are more fringe or maybe not even deep into baseball into it because this genre called NFTs, just like this genre called video games, changed the landscape. I think that's what we're talking about here in the macro. Mike, is that what you see? Yeah, listen, I, again, I think, you know, like I said, we're just starting this journey. No one understands the TAM or what the total addressable market of this space is. Uh, <laughs> right? You're gonna have VR glasses soon. Uh, we're gonna be able to see your NFTs through your VR glasses. You're gonna have whole metaverses that people live in, uh, that they watch games in, and all of a sudden you'll be able to buy your merchandise, you know, your digital merchandise in this digital world. And so uh, in five years, we're gonna look back and we're gonna be like, wow, it's a very different environment that we live in. And so, like I said, we're, we're building this for the long term. Uh, you can rest assured that for every partnership we have, the economics are, what we think about first is alignment. So we, we make money, they make money. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be a fascinating journey. Uh, and, and we're not, you know, we're, we're not even started in lots of ways. If I think of a brand that has enormous power, collectible potential, the same kind of craze and interest, I'm not sure whether it connects to the crypto world so much, it would be Disney, I guess. Gary, yeah. you're, the, you're the marketing guru. You've got 30 seconds. Pitch Disney. What would you be saying to Disney at this moment to get them to um, join you at Candy Digital? I don't need 30 seconds. They, they, they're already do. having, they always, they've had a hundred hours of meetings on this. We, you know, with this announcement, Mike, Michael and I say we're open for business. We want to talk to every meaningful intellectual property, but Disney has spent thousands of hours in the last 60 days, I promise you, around this conversation. Gary, Mike, what do you think? Listen, I, I think Gary's dead right. You cannot be in the entertainment space, the sports space, the IP space, the brand space, without really diving in and trying to understand how this is gonna change the landscape. And so every major company is thinking about it. My advice to people has been go slow, right? You don't need to rush in. Uh, and, and we're trying to build partnerships for the long run. Uh, we don't even have that many ways yet that people are displaying NFTs, if it's in the virtual world right. or in the physical world. Uh, all of that's gonna change in the next few years, right? With home displays with displays in the metaverse right on your phone in your computers on your oculus headset uh and so this is a frontier industry everyone's going to be part of it it's going to change the way we think about advertising about collectibles about sports it'll be fun big big, big changes always seem silly to everybody who's watching now until it's not social media was silly the internet was silly things are fads until they're world changers. Until, the, until they explode. Speaking of going slow, Mike, kind of the opposite, opposite of what we've seen in the crypto space. And I can't have you on the show without asking you what you, what you make of what we're seeing in terms of the price action at this moment in, in cryptocurrencies. And a lot of the feedback I get is that there are big whales out there now. And the, the smaller guys, the retail players collectively are really important, but they feel like they're being overwhelmed. What's no, your that's kind not. of response to that? Yeah. I don't think that's true at all. Listen, crypto started as a ground up movement and it is still basically a retail uh, game. I have been working for 
you know, eight years more trying to bring institutions into the space and they are moving into the space at an accelerating pace. But the price action is still dominated by, re by retail. Uh, it's one of the few places on earth that you can get 50, 75, 100 to one leverage. All the mm. big overseas exchanges provide immense amounts of leverage. I tell our customers and my friends, it's a hundred vol asset, you don't need leverage. But you know, part of this generation, <laughs> the new generation wants to get rich quick. And so people are taking monster leverage. What you saw happen was people got too excited about the space. Uh, there was so much good news coming out of lockup price in. Retail got very, very levered. Uh, and you could see that in so many different ways. And then a few things happened, right? The Chinese uh, made some, some comments where they kind of, you know, kicked the space in the knees. Uh, I think short-term painful, long-term actually very constructive. Uh, you had Elon Musk tweeting about ESG. You had a, a few things all happening at the same time, and it created this deleveraging, right? People were too long at the wrong level. They all got wiped out. And now we're going to consolidate here, you know, Bitcoin between, I don't know, 35,000 and 45,000 for a while until the story gets picked back up, until people brush off the dust, uh, and you'll see this market head much higher towards the end of the year. How long might no it go? How low might it go, just in case people are watching and we get to that point and they're fearful? Is there any I, I, level this could get to like, where you would worry? Every once in a while, my, my, my son says, are you Nostradamus? I say, no, I kind of wish I was. Listen, these <laughs> yeah, I know. Do, they usually take a few you know, weeks to months to consolidate before we, we head back higher. Um, I could the, be wrong. The, the one thing, the, such the, the one thing I would look say. look at the quality of the people that we're hiring at Galaxy, right? We started the year at 75, 80 people, or started last year. Uh, we're going to be 400 by the end of the year. And the, the level of, of uh, excellence in our summer in, intern class and in our new analysts and in, in the people we're bringing in is a quantum higher than it was three years ago. And so when I think about great businesses, they're all, it's human capital. And the amount of human capital pouring into the, the blockchain crypto space is immense. I saw that Candy Digital was hiring as well. Gary, come in, you were trying to say something there. No one thought of NFTs as part of, but it is part of the blockchain space. It's this revolution think, of decentralization. Yeah, I think the one thing the one thing I want to add was Mike's right. If you look at the historical way that Bitcoin and Ethereum have played, I would add I would add one more variable, which is the reality now. Though is there's so many more people playing in the space. And what can happen in that scenario is one big thing can happen tomorrow and it could change the dynamic of the marketplace. To your earlier point, Disney could come and announce X, Y, and Z and all of a sudden Ethereum takes a substantial push. You have enough real things happening now, not the alpha, we're in the beta stage. Big brands, big businesses, big uh, governments coming in that could do something that could trigger it in a much quicker cycle. And I think that, especially for Ethereum, where people are building on top of, is something to pay attention to. Yeah, and Mike could come out and say, you know what, I've had enough of crypto and I'm done, and the, and the market would, would collapse too. And is the message here just that it's early days. We're going to get these price swings until you get more accessibility, until you have more crypto products like NFTs and people get more comfortable with the space. Mike? Now I can hear. Of course. Yeah. Of yeah. course, you know, to just jump in, if I'm not sure if Mike's hearing. Of course, that's, that's what always happens. That's what happened with internet stocks. That's what just, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated that we're in 2021, just have lived through 1994 to 2021, 
and people don't see the pattern recognitions of consumer innovation, that's exactly what's gonna happen. Mike, final word, do I still have you? Yeah, I'm here again. I kind of I lost audio for a little while, so I'm sure Gary kept us entertained. Listen, yeah. <laughs> my my final word is like this whole space is moving at a, an unbelievable pace of innovation, of excitement, and of new people coming into it. And so there are going to be ups and downs in price, but I'm wildly confident that the NFT space is going to be far bigger than people think, uh, and the crypto space is going to be far bigger than people think wildly confident, even if it's a wild ride, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Guys, great to have you on. Thank you. Congrats with the launch. Mike Novogratz and Gary Vaynerchuk there. Thank you. Guys. Thanks, guys. You're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move with another look at what we're seeing in terms of early price action this Tuesday. U.S. stocks are near record highs in early trade. Energy stocks among the biggest gainers as oil prices rally ahead of today's OPEC Plus meeting. Tesla higher too after almost uh, or a near 10% drop in May amid news of price hikes. If you can sustain it and people will pay the prices, then it helps your bottom line. That's the message. And AMC shares are soaring again. After a more than 150% rise in May, the popular Reddit stock announcing a $230 million capital raise to help it get through theater reopening uncertainties. Now, it's probably a safe bet. Most university graduates don't remember their commencement ceremony. But if this happened, you probably would. Because you have shown that you are capable of doing work under difficult circumstances because you represent the best of your generation, we wish to give you a fresh start. So therefore, the Wilberforce University Board of Trustees has authorized me to forgive any debt. That's life-changing news there given by the president of Ohio's Wilberforce University. The council debt applies to all 2020 and 2021 graduates of the historically black university. The total amount is more than $375,000. The school says the amount will be covered by scholarships from the United Negro College Fund, Jack and Jill, and other funding. Some serious happiness and jubilation there and disbelief. Now, speaking of disbelief, stunning footage out of Iceland, a drone crashing straight into an erupting volcano. It coasts towards the crater, then straight into the bubbling hot lava. The volcano is around 25 miles outside Iceland's capital and has been spewing lava since March. This is the first eruption the area has seen in hundreds of years. Wow, can't take my eyes off that, but I have to read. Meanwhile, NASA's Perseverance rover is celebrating 100 days on Mars. 100 days in Martian time, that is, since landing in February. It's captured all kinds of pictures from the red planet's surface. Perseverance has the funding to keep operating there for two of our Earth years, looking for signs of past life. And we hope it comes back in time to send back a few more pictures along the way. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great rest of day and connect the world with Becky Anderson. Who's next? When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.